if we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land, we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery, with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David, they add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. Bob France Authority on AM 1420. The answer. Yes, indeed it is. And hour number two is now underway at nine minutes past 10 o'clock. Thanks for being with us on this Wednesday, the 23rd morning of the month of September in the year of our Lord 2020. I told you at the top of the show what I'll tell you now at the top of this hour. You're in luck. If you are a regular Wednesday listener and not a Tuesday listener for the second straight week, you get to be a part of Kersenow Day. Peter Kersenow joining us now. Peter, of course is a member of the United States Commission on Civil Rights, the longest-serving commissioner on that board. He is also a Cleveland attorney, a best-selling author, a columnist for the National Review, and, of course, he hosts the Kirsten Report on AM 1420, The Answer. Peter, good morning. Hey, Bob. Thanks very much for that intro. Beautiful day in Cleveland. Um, just a few more weeks until Trump trounces Biden. Ah, but before he trounces Biden, he's going to tick off the entirety of the leftist establishment in this country by naming a Supreme Court justice to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Here's an example of what we're going to hear from the left. Come on, Chuck. Well, what they should expect and what they should see is how the nominees, the nominee that the president will pose, poses a real threat to Americans in their lives. This is not just a game of politics, Democrats, Republicans. This nominee and a conservative right-wing court will take away America's rights, will take away America's progress. Take away America's rights. Threaten Americans' lives. Americans' lives and rights are never going to be the same again, says Chuck Schumer. By all rights, we should honor her dying wish imparted to her granddaughter that she, quote, not be replaced until the next president is installed. So just to, uh, I, I checked, Pete. In fact, I spent about 48 hours poring over every word of the United States Constitution, looking for the part where it says all of this is null and void in the event of a dying justice's uh, final words. I uh, couldn't find it anywhere. So uh, apparently we're going to have to go by the Constitution and not Ruth Bader Ginsburg's dying wishes. Pete, I've been waiting to hear from you ever since it happened Friday night, since the untimely death of the uh, justice, and uh, certainly all of the politicking that has been going on for the last four days. Have at it. Well, you missed the AOC codicil to the Constitution, obviously, which apparently all the Democrats and the media, but I repeat myself, have been abiding by, and that is whenever there is a vacancy in the Supreme Court, we have to do whatever the Democratic Party wants us to do. 
Um, ah, look, yes. it's, 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 it's awful that somebody died. Uh, it was not unexpected. Uh, all due respect to Ruth Bader's, Bader Ginsburg. But we have a constitution. The constitution is plain. The president gets to nominate the Senate, you know, with the advising consent of the Senate. And the president, last time I checked, is president until January 20th, not until November 2nd at 11.59 p.m. And uh, the Senate is in the hands of Republicans. And if they've got the votes, they have the right and they have the obligation with, you know, to advise and consent, that is to confirm, if they choose to do so, the pick of the United States president. So all of this is perfectly constitutional, and there's nothing wrong with it. It has been done, as Ted Cruz has said. I didn't do the math on this. I had actually commissioned my assistant to take a look at it, but Ted Cruz got to it before we did and showed that this is something that's happened more than two dozen times in the past, contrary to what the constitutional scholars in the media, um, who simply parrot the Democratic or the Chuck Schumer line, have said, and that is, this happens all has happened so many times in the past where you've had a vacancy on the Supreme Court in the last year of a president's term. And what happens is, I think it was 17 out of the 19 times that it's happened, I'm strike that, 17 of the 19 times where there has been a vacancy in the last year where the president and the Senate were the same party. That nominee has been confirmed, right. but only one of the ten times, I believe, the figure was where they are in different hands has the nominee been confirmed, such as was the case with Merrick Garland. The Republicans held the Senate. Barack Obama was the uh, president. He appoints or nominates Merrick Garland and McConnell said, no, we're not doing it. And frankly, he's got the right to do that because that's uh, one of his um, uh, prerogatives that w of the Senate. He didn't even bring it up for a vote. And uh, by the way, I've argued before Merrick Garland. I think the guy's brilliant. I really do, regardless of his party. Uh, one of the best judges I've ever argued before. Nonetheless, that's what the Constitution says. Also, it is said without challenge, uh, at least I've heard it probably a dozen times in the media, this charge of hypocrisy that McConnell and Republicans had a different standard under the Merrick Garland vacancy or um, uh, the, the, the vacancy that occurred after Justice Scalia died, as they do now. But again, there is a significant difference. At that time, the Senate was held by Republicans, a different party than the president. In this case, both parties or the, the party holds both the White House and the Senate. And why is that important? Again, those racist framers demonstrate their brilliance. We have a uh, whole number of doctrines that govern the Constitution, um, but among them is this checks and balances and separation of powers. Now, with respect to checks and balances, what comes into play is the American people voted for a president. They also voted for a Republican Senate. In the Merrick Garland situation, there was a check on the constitutional prerogative of President Obama in the guise of or in the form of a Republican Senate. The American people said, okay, we want the presidency to be in the hands of a Democrat, but we, you know, want some curbs on him, so we're going to have a Republican Senate that under the Constitution has the ability 
to check the power. Well, a Republican Senate also has the ability to check the power of a president, but clearly it's one where it's unlikely to happen in certain circumstances if the president does his job adequately. And in the highly partisan atmosphere that we currently have, we know that almost every Republican and Democrat are going to virtually vote in lockstep doesn't matter when it happens for Democrats. They've been doing that for the last four years. And unfortunately for we conservatives, we are always grousing about the fact that with Republicans, it's like herding cats to get them all on the same page. But nonetheless, this is perfectly lawful. And simply because the media wants to parrot the phrases of Chuck Schumer doesn't make it any different or wrong or anything of that nature. There's one element of this, Pete, that I want to get your commentary on, because I, by the way, I shared the numbers that you just shared from the Wall Street Journal this morning. They did a great piece on the historical significance of this, the 19 previous times that there was the same party in power in the White House as in control of the Senate. Nominations have been made in an election year. 17 of those times, there was a confirmation. So this is perfectly within the norms when you do have that, you know, that that setup. But with respect to the hypocrisy, Mitch McConnell, because of the difference that you just delineated, I don't think is being hypocritical. Lindsey Graham, however, is hard to defend because Lindsey Graham made it very, very clear four years ago when he said this. This is the last year uh, of a lame duck president. And if Ted Cruz or Donald Trump get to be president, they've all asked us not to confirm or take up a selection by President uh, Obama. So if a vacancy occurs in their last year of their first term, guess what? You will use their words against them. I want you to use my words against me. If there's a Republican president in 2016 and a vacancy occurs in the last year of the first term, you can say, Lindsey Graham said, let's let the next president, whoever it might be, make that nomination and you could use my words against me and you'd be absolutely right all right so now that's that's pretty clear and he they are indeed doing exactly that now my defense of lindsey graham and it's thin but my defense of lindsey graham essentially saying i've changed my mind is what they did to brett kavanaugh uh, they have completely changed the process. It was, by the way, it was also their fault in 2013 when Harry Reid uh, eliminated the filibuster rule. Uh, he went with that nuclear option. But they have changed the rule in terms of how justices or justice appointees or nominees get confirmed anyway. Remember, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I believe, was confirmed 97 to 3, despite the fact that every Republican knew she was a radical, that she was a leftist, that she was going to be more of an activist than she was going to be a jurist uh, on that court, but that she was qualified. And the rule used to be if the person is qualified, even if you don't like their ideology, if they're qualified, you have to vote yes on them. Well, they've changed that on steroids with the, uh, the campaign that they waged against Brett Kavanaugh. And I think that gives Lindsey, uh, Lindsey Graham the right to say, you know what, you all have changed the confirmation game anyway, so I have a right to change my mind. Your thoughts? Uh, I think, you know, hypocrisy prevails in a lot of places. And I agree, Lindsey Graham had a, a poor articulation of the, the, his alleged principle or the principle here. And I'm not going to defend Lindsey Graham. You can say he was hypocritical, and I think that's, that, that's, that's correct. But after you get past hypocrisy, the Constitution prevails, and the Constitution uh, permits for, in fact, requires this kind of procedure that we're witnessing right now. Look, 
You're right about that. Now, the, the, the Democrats are grousing now when the rest of us, many of us were saying when Harry Reid changed the filibuster, and even before he did so, he was making noises about it because he was being frustrated by the Republicans. Uh, many of us said, I know I said it in National Review and, and more important, and, and erudite scholars were saying it also, that they were going to rue the day they did that. The filibuster is an imperative tool, frankly. Um, it's not simply one of these things that is a minor check and balance. It, 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 uh, otherwise, the Senate devolves into the same kind of partisan mess as the House of Representatives. And no disrespect to the House of Representatives. But nonetheless... They got rid of it, and now they're living with the consequences. They're also living with the consequences of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, God rest her soul, made the decision, despite the fact that a lot of people were encouraging her to retire, and she'd you know, served for a long time in the Supreme Court during the Obama administration to give the Obama administration the ability to pick her replacement. She failed to do so. Now we have a Republican president, and he's chosen to go down a diff- different path, and the Democrats are pulling their hair out. They got yeah. outmaneuvered, uh, may- maybe not intentionally, but they're outmaneuvered. That's the end of the story right there. And guess what? Politics has something to do with this. Yes, absolutely. Does anyone in their right mind think that a Democratic Senate that has been yelling about packing the Supreme Court, getting rid of the Electoral College, completely eliminating the filibuster, would do anything other than what President Trump is doing if the roles were reversed? No question about um, it. And that's big, Pete. Let me jump in there because we're up against it. And I want to come back on the other side and get your thoughts on Amy Coney Barrett, widely believed to be the president's pick, and the attacks she is already facing from the left over, of all things. What, are they going to call her a serial rapist the way they tried to do with Brett Kavanaugh? No, they're going to say she's too religious. She's too devoted to her faith to serve on the Supreme Court of the United States. I'll get your thoughts on that next. AM 1420, The Answer. Okay, 1025, we continue now with Peter Kirsten now on AM 1420, The Answer. We're going to talk about uh, criminalizing cities that refuse to condemn criminalization. Coming up uh, after the bottom of the hour news, Attorney General William Barr has uh, threatened to defund, to the extent that he can, at least three anarchistic jurisdictions. And that's how we describe Seattle, Portland, and New York City. And we're going to get Peter's thoughts on that, particularly as it pertains to a debate that he had on TV the other night uh, on uh, Shannon Bream's show on uh, Fox uh, Late Night. Peter, I want to stay for this segment, though, on Amy Coney Barrett. Um, it doesn't matter whether it's Barrett or one of the other final five um, individuals uh, who are on the president's shortlist here. Um, at least the top two are considered to be very devout Catholics, and automatically, long before they're even ever nominated, the left is, you know, same thing they did with Kavanaugh to an extent. They're filling out their objections, they're writing their letters in their literature and leaving the name blank, and they're going to insert name here and say, this person is radical, going to harm Americans, going to let their Catholic faith or their Christian faith uh, damage um, uh, the Constitution. And you say what? Well, I think um, 
all of the individuals on the list of the, on the president's short list, and he may surprise us all, are uh, good, solid conservatives. Are we going to be disappointed in the future by one of them? There's always the, the possibility. I was disappointed by Gorsuch in the Bostock decision. Of course, uh, you know, we were disappointed by, <laughs> disappointed to put it mildly, with Roberts in uh, NFIB versus Sebelius, you know, the Obamacare case and other cases, too, where he looks like, uh, you know, he's starting to play the Kennedy role. But nonetheless, we do have right now the the president has the opportunity to convert this court into a very strong 6-3 conservative majority. I mean, it's for, for a good 30 years to come. And if he wins a second term, there's a good possibility he's going to get even one more pick. So this is extraordinary what's going on. And my personal favorite, although I, I know may disagree with you, Peter, Pete, I made because what you said about Roberts, I would take that further. I think if somebody as conservative as Barrett gets seated, I think Roberts goes full left. I think Roberts, almost on the institution's principles, will say we shouldn't be 6-3. I'm going to side even more with the liberals than I already have to make it closer to 5-4. I don't know why. I guess it's just his history on very important cases. I don't trust Roberts to remain or be anything even close to conservative if somebody like Barrett is seated. Well, he has gotten what some people call Potomac fever. However, remember, he's constrained by, by much of the things he's already done, the precedents that he's written in the past. And in addition to that, as you've just articulated, it doesn't behoove him to switch his vote now if he's thinking about balancing it, because if you've got a 6-3 conservative majority, if he switches, it still stays 5-4. He's not changing anything. So, but that's neither here nor there. What I'm, I'm really excited about is getting this nomination through, and I'm, it looks like by every measure, it's going to happen unless something really strange happens. My personal favorite, not knowing anybody, is uh, Kate, uh, Amy Coney Barrett. I do have some tangential connection in terms of my counsel on the Civil Rights Commission was telling me about Amy Coney Barrett seven years ago when she was simply a professor at Notre Dame Law School. She was not on anybody's radar screen, and she simply was raving about the fact that this Amy Coney Barrett was the best professor she'd ever had, blah, blah, blah. She's, she's brilliant and all these other things. And it was just stuck in the back of my mind the first time she was um, considered back during the last vacancy. Um, I, I remembered that. And when you take a look at her, she's almost like the perfect Republican or conservative nominee. She checks all the boxes. Scalia clerk, number one at her class in Notre Dame Law School. She's, uh, she is truly a devout Catholic. But more importantly, with respect to this particular case is, you know, look, she is a originalist textualist by every measure. And we've taken a look, as you know, I've done five of the last six confirmation hearings. Um, mm -hmm. And if I get called, I don't know if I will. I don't even know if they're, how, how they're going to conform their confirmation hearings this year. It could be by Zoom. Who knows? But I want to be prepared. So my assistant has been reviewing all the case law. And there's not a whole lot because she's only been on the Seventh Circuit for a couple of years now. But everything that we've seen thus far confirms that she is in the mold. She, she, some people have called her female Scalia. Um, I say that, yeah, she probably, in terms of her writing, is very close to a Scalia, but in terms of her approach, and this is, you know, really splitting hairs, frankly, I'd say she's more like Thomas, who I think is probably the I'll best conservative who's been on the court for the last 50 years. So, um and the others I don't know, I don't have an opinion about, because I haven't done a deep dive on them yet, uh, but uh, you know what, I trust Trump. And we are in a remarkable position here, and that's what's driving the left 
just absolutely apoplectic because they view the Supreme Court as a group of super legislators, uh, not individuals who are supposed to interpret the Constitution, but are supposed to amend the Constitution according to the left's wishes. Well, I'm so glad to hear when you described her, Pete, and we'll take our news break here. You described her as an originalist textualist, and I think that's so important. We hear people say, well, the liberals wing, what liberal wing of the, of the Supreme Court and the conservative wing. I don't believe there to be a conservative wing. Not to say that Justice Thomas and Justice uh, Alito and, and, and certainly uh, Scalia before them weren't conservatives, but they didn't let their conservatism dictate their decisions. They were originalists. They literally just said it's what the Constitution says, what the text is, that's what matters, and that's what we interpret. I hate when they say it's a conservative judge, you know, it's going to be a conservative court. It's not. It's an originalist court versus an activist court, and there's a big difference there. So I'm glad to hear you describe it that way. All right, Peter. We'll take news now. We're going to come back and talk about violence in America's cities and what the federal government can do about it. And uh, I'm going to relive part of your exchange the other night. I was fuming. You made, you sent me to bed mad Monday night with your conversation with Ethan Behrman on Shannon Bream's show. And I'll tell everybody why and let you respond to that on AM 1420, The Answer. Okay, 1036. Now we continue on AM 1420, The Answer with Peter Kirsten. Now, Pete, I want to pivot from the courts to the streets, although they are not mutually exclusive, considering the fact um, that Democrats are threatening to burn it down even more than they already are if Amy Coney Barrett or any other Trump appointee gets seated uh, before the election. So they kind of are combined, which brings us to uh, the conversation William Barr, the Attorney General of the United States, has threatened to defund at least three cities that he describes as anarchistic jurisdictions, meaning the governments in those cities are doing nothing to quell the violence and protect people's personal and property rights. And we're talking Portland, Seattle, and New York City, at least at the outset. Let's combine that with Governor Ron DeSantis down in Florida uh, putting forth a proposal that he hopes the state legislature will take up that cracks down on rioting, makes rioters criminally and financially or civilly liable for damage that they cause. Also, by the way, allows drivers to run through and over mobs without liability because we've seen enough people being attacked and dragged out of their cars and beaten by mobs. But at any rate, Pete, you went on Shannon Bream's show on Monday night to discuss and debate with Ethan Behrman the threat of uh, this ongoing left-wing violence. And I want people to hear a little bit about what you had to deal with from uh, your debate opponent there. Well, I think the violence, first of all, needs to be called out for what it is. And and the vast majority of people reject violence. Um, Furthermore, we need a DOJ that actually will pay attention to what DHS and many other groups point out, which is it's not left-wing groups that are the cause of violence. It is alt-right and white supremacist groups that are the number one source of domestic violence in the United States. Okay, but I don't think Um, that they're saying that none of this is caused by left-leaning groups. I think they're saying there's a mix. No. And and let's keep the focus on the number one group, which is not being named by this administration, the DOJ, out loud, ever. Um, It's always the focus on the left. So this move, by the way, really quickly, I I mean, the idea that the DOJ is going to be able to do this and withhold funds, I mean, that's Dole v. South Dakota from the 1980s. Okay, that's enough of of, uh, Ethan Behrman right there, Peter Kersenow. But um, how do you respond, now that I give you more time than you had on the TV hit, uh, to, and, and he's right to the extent that this is what Homeland Security says. I don't understand it, 
because I'm watching all of the violence like you are every night, and I'm not seeing anybody painting anything about white supremacy or MAGA or anything of that nature that would indicate right-wing supremacy groups uh, in all of this violence. I'm seeing BLM. I'm seeing ACAB. I'm seeing uh, um, uh, Antifa. I'm seeing all of these things happening. But the Department of Homeland Security has indeed declared that white supremacist groups, for some reason, pose the greatest danger domestically to the American people. How do you respond to that? Um, I've got a lot of responses. Well, first of all, with respect to that de- that debate, I didn't even realize we were having a debate because uh, it, usually they tell you ahead of time what they're going to be, uh, general in general terms, what they're going to be talking about. Mm-hmm. I didn't even realize that uh, Ethan Berman was going to be on, and uh, I was completely blindsided by it. But none- nonetheless, when he came up with that, of course, you said you were angry. Boy, I was fuming, and I was trying to contain my fury. Because virtually everything he said, and I don't know if he knew it, because remember, a lot of people on the left say things that just aren't true because they don't know, because they are submersed in the mainstream media, which mm-hmm. is, frankly, they're wrong on almost everything related to the riots. And it goes beyond that. Almost everything of contemporary note in the last three years, ever since Trump. So they are in this little bubble and may actually believe what they're saying. But nonetheless, what he was saying was just the craziest thing in the world. And I, I couldn't con- you know, contain myself. I called it ridiculous. And I was trying to restrain myself, as you could tell. But nonetheless, what he says, first of all, he cites a case. Um, and I didn't have enough time to respond to it. But I'm familiar with the case, extremely familiar with the case, saying that the administration does not have the right to withhold funds from anarchic and, and Anarchistic. For you to say, for, yeah, anarchistic jurisdictions that aren't enforcing the law. Well, as I said, well, that remains to be seen, and I was being charitable because he gave just a 180-degree different interpretation of, not interpretation, he got it completely wrong. South Dakota versus Dole actually was a 7-2 decision that said, yeah, the administration can withhold certain funds and has a lot of tools available to it if a jurisdiction that had been receiving federal funds is not doing certain things. And it has the ability to try to influence those jurisdictions within limits. I mean, there are limits. That's why you had a case. But he got that completely wrong. But Three million listeners out there believed that may have believed that, oh, well, you know, the administration doesn't have the ability to do this. Number two is just what all of your listeners know and have known because they have two ears, two eyes, and a brain. And that is 99.9% of the violence over the last four months comes from Democrats or people on the left. You won't find a white supremacist in a hundred mile vote. It's just just so absurd what he was saying. Um, how do you respond to somebody saying that night is day and that black is white and that wet is dry? It's just it was extraordinary. Well, well here, here, Peter, 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 let's let's go to his let's go to his example. Okay, because this is what sent me to bed angry. This was the end of the segment that you did with Ethan right. Berman. Here, here is what uh, what he had to say. Let's listen. To the lives and property of the citizenry. All right, super quick. Okay, so what about the armed white protesters who took over the Michigan Capitol? Armed white men that got no treatment from law enforcement. That's just such a false narrative that you threw out again, there. They stormed and shot on the Michigan, Michigan Capitol, but that's not left behind. Any violence. We didn't see the No action by law enforcement to stop them. Congratulations to the DOJ for doing nothing. Okay. 
Okay, we didn't see those guys burning the place down. So listen, I, I think folks agree that there are a lot of groups that have hijacked the original message of, the, of what started out as peaceful protests, and we've gone somewhere totally different altogether with the number. Okay, Pete, so that, that part of this is extraordinarily important. That's what sent me to bed mad. He called you a liar and said you threw something false out there when you said there's no right-wing groups that are doing this, and they pointed to the Michigan, the quote-unquote storming of the Michigan Capitol in opposition to Gretchen Whitmer's draconian lockdowns in that state. Not one spray painting, to my knowledge, not one assault, not one smashed window, not one looted building, not one fire set. They stood there, said the Pledge of Allegiance, and I think they sang the national anthem, and then they went home. This is their example of right-wing extremist, uh, right, right-wing militia danger? Go ahead. Yeah. Well, he heard his argument by doing that, because almost everybody, or at least people who watch the Shannon Bream show, know precisely what you just said. And as I indicated, you couldn't hear me, because you know he was shouting and uh, making all these ridiculous claims. But I was saying there was absolutely no violence. There was no, the reason why they weren't arrested is because they did not break the law. They had their Second Amendment rights to carry firearms. They were peaceful. They were protesting. I thought protesting was the number one value for Democrats these days. Uh, but apparently only if they're burning down buildings. So it, it was just the height of absurdity. But remember, the important instruction from this is he is emblematic of the left. The left, and remember, he was talking about um, uh, language in terms of violence. This is what you have, the, the conflation of violence and speech in the minds of the left. They will treat speech as violence and violence as acceptable protest. It's, it's extraordinary what we have here. It's 180 degrees uh, around from reality. <laughs> Everything he said was 180 degrees around from reality, but it's instructive. If it infuriates you, I, I would respectfully request sublimate that fury and use rationality and understand the threat under which we are operating, because he is representative of what's going on in Congress right now, too. The AOCs of the world are dictating the manner in which the Democratic Party approaches these significant issues of rioting, the, the Supreme Court, all of our institutions, as I indicated earlier in that, that uh, segment, are under, they're undergoing a stress test. That it transcends presidential politics in a, a discrete Supreme Court uh, confirmation hearing. It is a full frontal assault on all of our values and institutions in the United States of America, whether it's at the 1619 Project in terms of education, whether it's re- removing the filibuster, packing the Supreme Court, abolishing the Electoral College, or what we, were, we will be seeing in about a month and a half, and that is a full frontal assault on the electoral system when the Democrats are going to try to litigate their way into the White House. No matter what, the only way that Trump gets in the White House without a whole lot of controversy, and I can't even imagine there's any way he can do that, is if he has an overwhelming victory on November 3rd. It's got to be one that is so far beyond the margin of error that any kind of litigation would be fruitless. But we are seeing an frontal assault on all of our institutions. It is, um, it's very, very concerning. And what you heard from that individual is just a taste of where the left wants to take us. 
Yeah, um, I'm glad you ended it that way, Pete, because I'll just give you another minute or two here to hit this. The left does want to take us there. Um, AOC said this should radicalize all of us, the uh, the replacement of Ginsburg with a Trump appointee before this. It should radicalize us. Ayanna Presley has talked about wanting more people in the streets. Uh, they, they have continued to threaten to burn it down. A CNN journalist, I use that in air quotes, said we need to burn the whole thing down. Don Lemon said we need to burn the whole thing thing down and they have said this pete not quite figuratively they have said right. we can take that literally um so they're literally calling for more burning and, and and assaulting and blocking of traffic and confrontations and and smashing and grabbing and looting and so on and so forth they're literally threatening it if the president does his constitutional duty we truly are very often you hear in every election cycle that you know this is the most important election and you know the, the united states is in the balance and all this stuff um, and it's always hyperbole, and most people understand it to be a hyperbole. It's not hyperbole this time, because we've seen over the last four months what the left will do with the assistance of the media, and they have boldly proclaimed that they're going to do even more and worse things if they don't get their way. Uh, extraordinary. And the only way we have to approach this under our system of government is through the ballot, and I'm confident that President Trump is going to win. Um, legitimately, I am not confident in terms of what the post-election landscape will look like, but I still think we prevail at the end of the day. And that's one of the reasons why, going back to our earlier segment, it's important, as Ted Cruz and others have said, that we not have a vacancy on the Supreme Court, because this will go up to the Supreme Court. You can mark, you know, you can mark my words on this. Yeah. Everyone knows it's going to the Supreme Court. And if you want people who will legislate or want people who will consider politics in deciding things as opposed to the rule of law, then go ahead and, and leave that uh, vacancy open and or put a Democrat in that position. But if you want the rule of law to prevail, if, and I don't mean to be hyperbolic about this, but if you want the United States of America and its systems, as we have understood it, to prevail after November 3rd, uh, you know, it's one, this is not political. This is one of these things that's structural. You have to vote for a Donald Trump. You have to hope that there's a, a uh, justice that's installed into that vacancy. It is, it is imperative that that happens. And that's not a political matter. That's a matter of practice and fact. Pete, a bit of sad news here for you, because you and I are both sports fans, even though we have sworn off professional sports until they stop their wokeness campaigns. Uh, I don't know if you saw this. While we were talking, news came across my screen that the legendary Gail Sayers has passed away oh, at 77. Gail Sayers was a hero of mine, of, of a lot of people growing up. Um, one of the most amazing running backs of all time. I still remember when he scored six touchdowns in one game. He was actually vying with Jim Brown for the title at the time of, of the greatest running back at that particular point in time. Uh, just an extraordinary human being on all levels is all I can say. I didn't know him personally, but heard a lot about him, read his, read his book, I Am Third. Uh, didn't know he was ill. Um, that's, you know, a lot of us looked up to him when I was growing up as, you know, kind of a model. And he was the precursor. He was a more elegant Barry Sanders. Oh, you're killing me. Front. You're stealing my thunder. I was just going to tell you that. I mean, he was to me, and I, and I couldn't enjoy him in his prime. I was too young. I had to watch him on film, most of it black and white. But, yes, uh, the six touchdowns against the 49ers. And he reminded me, 
Really, he was the probably a more graceful was the word I was going to use, uh, gracefully elusive running back in league history prior to Barry Sanders, and I think he right. was more graceful than Barry. Barry was more, you know, choppy and spinny and and, and jukey, and 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 Gale was graceful in doing all of those things. It was crazy, but uh, yeah, it makes me very sad to see this. Yeah, I, I would just say one other thing, Bob. Um, if your readers want to read one of the better sports biographies of all time. I mentioned I Am Third. I read it as a kid. It truly is a very good biography because among I Am Third means that he put God first, his family second, and his, himself third. He lived that credo. Very important, especially in today's woke culture where the LeBron Jameses of the world apparently put themselves first, second, and third. Hey, amen. What a great way to end it. Peter Kirstenau, thank you, my friend. Great job, as always. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Bob. 1050 AM 1420, The Answer, back with our final segment after this. All right, 1056, final segment, always a short one. That's the bad news. The good news, however, is that uh, I've got three more hours to talk to you starting one hour from now, and uh, we're going to have a couple of uh, really good guests, the first of which is coming up at the top of the second hour of the show at 1 o'clock today as I sit in for Dennis Prager, and it's going to be Ian Rowe of the 1776 Unites organization. He spoke yesterday at the Ohio Board of Education meeting, giving public commentary and, uh, and uh, testimony about the danger of the Black Lives Matter at school legislation, or not legislation, curriculum as well as the 1619 Project curriculum, Ian Rowe is going to join me on uh, the Dennis Prager Show. So I'll be hosting for Dennis from noon to 3 today. Um, I want to remind you of a couple of other things, too, by the way. Get educated on what socialism really is. Dinesh D'Souza's new movie is called... um, uh, a trump card and you need to watch this movie really learn about what's going on and what dangers we face if joe biden wins the presidency along with kamala harris uh this film trump card is an expose of socialism and corruption and gangsterism all of which defines the modern democrat party it reveals what's unique about modern socialism who's behind it why it's evil and how it can work or excuse me how we can work rather with uh, president trump to stop it Pre-order the DVD for this movie or video on demand now at WatchTrumpCard.com. That's WatchTrumpCard.com. Uh, I'm going to see if we can squeeze in one call here before we're done. TJ in Cleveland. Go ahead, TJ. You're on the air. You know, Bob, in my perfect America, we would split this into two independent nations, conservative and liberal America. And think of the possibilities. We could open up trade with them. We could import illegals to them while they import their cows to us. Uh, since we'll maintain traditional power plants and they'll be running on solar and wind, we'll make a fortune selling them electricity to charge their cars, uh, uh, keep their lights on in their homes. Uh, now, you know, they're against air- airplanes, so they're going to have a no-fly zone over their country, but we don't have to pay attention to that because they won't even maintain a military to enforce their no-fly uh, zone. Uh, the-, the possibilities are unending. But all kidding aside, Bob, the divisions are so deep, I think that's the only solution. Well, I think, TJ, thanks for the call. I think we're pretty much there now just without divide, defining the borders. There really are two Americas. Look, ask the National Football League. Ask the NFL. They play two different national anthems, a regular one and a black one. So clearly there are two different countries, according to the NFL. And I'm speaking only tongue-in-cheek very, very lightly because uh, that is that is where we are. Sad to say, but true. 
Our thanks to uh, my guests uh, for joining us today. Peter Kirsten out. Thanks to you for listening. Thanks to Andy and Marcy for running the show. Stay with me an hour from now after you listen to Mike Gallagher. I'll be with, uh, with you for the Dennis Prager Show. Make sure you tune in for that. We'll see you then. Bye-bye.